Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. Uh, Okay. How about a sermon? Let's get into the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, guess what book we're turning to? Genesis. Genesis. Guess what chapter we're going to? Good guesses around there. It's one, two, or three, maybe. We'll go to chapter two. The end of chapter two is where we're going to begin today. Why are we doing a series on Genesis? If you sort of read some of what went along on the screen there, the first 11 chapters of Genesis um, are presented to us as if they're the first half of all of scripture. They set up and make sense of everything that follows the first 11 chapters. Genesis 12 all the way to Revelation 22 make much more sense to us, have a lot more meaning when we understand what's going on in the first 11 chapters, the first half of scripture. Why spend time? Well, we want to be grounded in the word. We want to discover and encounter what God is like as presented through scripture to us. And in addition to that, There are things that live in the first 11 chapters that are absolutely essential for living, for your life and for mine. There are deep questions you and I face, aren't there? You don't have to have a particular life experience to have questions. You don't have to have been a Christian for a few minutes or maybe on a spiritual journey that's arriving somewhere near Christ. Maybe you've been a lifelong follower of Christ. All of us know what it's like to have deep questions. And thankfully, God gifts us his word in these first 11 chapters address many of these deep, deep questions. So today, I think we're giving more time to questions like this. Why does it hurt to be human? Where does that hurt come from? In fact, if you were with us last week, Pastor Clay brought a great message that helped introduce some of the answering to those kind of deep questions. Today speaks to that as well, and next Sunday will also help speak to those kind of questions. So far in our series, this is the fourth week, so far we've encountered a creator and his creation. We have found that there is an image of the creator in his creation, and it's Humanity, And we found last week that he has given his image a choice. They're not in a paradise prison. They have an opportunity to walk in relationship with him. Hence, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's one of the most mysterious things in scriptures. And many of us wonder, why in the world is it in the garden? Why not hide it somewhere? Why, why should it be there at all? Because in the absence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there would be no relationship. God is a God of relationship. He he hasn't created humanity to be robots to just exist and be absent of relationship with him. Relationship, if it's to be real, must involve choice. There must be freedom. Otherwise, it's a violation of love. And God is love. He cannot violate his own nature. So he offers us choice. He gives us the opportunity to choose him or to reject him. So there are two trees in the garden, a tree that when we eat of it, declares our dependence upon God. Or a second tree, if you choose to eat of it, is a declaration of your independence from God. Today, we're giving thought to the fact that in these first 11 chapters, the first half of scripture, we discover not only is there a choice given to us when exercised wrong can pollute our world, 
but we live in a world that has an enemy. Today we're thinking about the serpent that we find in Genesis chapter 3. I like how Ian Provan, who wrote a great book called Seriously Dangerous Religion, brings his summary. I don't know if that was a phone or a gaming system, but uh, <laughs> it sounded exciting, whatever it was. Um, Ian Provan gives his summary of Genesis, the first few chapters so far, and I want you to hear it as he puts it as I read it right now. The story so far, the authors of the book of Genesis believe that order, goodness, and beauty exist in the world because it is the creation of a personal God, a God who created a sacred space in which life, including human life, can flourish. God's purpose in creating this world was to bless his creatures, to show them love and faithfulness. The human creatures who stand at the center of God's purposes are each one created by God in his image, equal in standing before him and with a full part to play in the governance of the cosmos in communion or relationship with him. In the world, God has made it possible for creatures to depart from the good and turn toward evil. There is free will in the cosmos and, as we see in the garden, and as Genesis 3 opens, at least one personal non-human creature has already exercised it badly. So I want you to turn with me now to, we're, we're going to begin actually in Genesis chapter 2 at the very end. Typically the text about the serpent would begin in chapter 3 verse 1. But I want you to pick up something that we discover right away at the end of chapter 2. Read this with me. It says this in verse 25. The man and his wife, so husband and wife, male, female, were created by God, were both naked and they felt no shame. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about that language. In the ancient Near East to ancient Israel, this concept of naked and unashamed meant I can be myself or I can live my life without having to wear any masks. Um, and some of you still are triggered by the concept of masks because of a pandemic. That totally went over my head when I was speaking a few weeks ago and I was informed by other people. They thought that was maybe a COVID jab or some people were like, hey man, no masks. Um, no, it's a deeper thought than that, <laughs> believe it or not. This wasn't a hobby horse political position. <laughs> It was this idea that you and I don't have to pretend to be somebody else. This idea of naked and unashamed means I get to be totally who God created me to be. What's interesting about our text today, it is about the serpent, but it's bracketed by something. The text opens with nakedness, and it actually ends with nakedness, as you'll see in a few moments. Um, some of you may have seen this headline a few years ago. I saved it because I just thought it was fantastic. Uh, I'll show it to you right now. German nudist chases down laptop-stealing wild boar. Did anybody see that in the news a few years ago? I just thought it was amazing. And somebody decided to snap a picture of it and send it into the news. So I added the blue screen there for you. It wasn't there previous, but you're thankful that it's there, I promise you. Um, <laughs> What an adventure for this fellow. I suppose he was relaxing, doing whatever version of relaxing he did in his experience. And along comes a wild boar, snatches his bag that has his laptop, and off it runs with it, so he has to get up and chase it. Um, so he goes from a place of rest to suddenly running. And in a way, 
our text today, Adam and Eve are in a place of rest. And as we'll see by the end of the story, they're on the run as well. Their story goes from no shame to shame. This guy here, he's just shameless all the time, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> The man and the wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now we go into chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than all of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Have you ever wondered why a serpent? Now, I happen to be proudly anti-snake. Um, I've spoken to this in previous messages, so I won't elaborate, aside from saying I really don't like them. I don't know that they've... There might be a creation flaw in them or an evolutionary issue with them. Essentially, they're a head with a tail. There's not a lot to them. And uh, they just make me feel gross all the time whenever... I, and I love you so much that I had to do some research on serpents, which meant I had to go online, and every person who writes an article or any information wants to show you a picture. And it's terrible. I hated every moment of it, but that's me. Some people in their bizarre, deranged ways prefer owning a snake or having it as a pet or touching one, and that's terrible. We'll pray for you at the end. Um, psycho uh, psychologists have actually studied six-month-old babies to gauge their responses to certain things that they see. And so they'd put a, a picture of a tree um, or a family or just various sort of nice items in front of the child to see what happens visually to the child and they monitor things in their system. And when they ran this study, when they put an image of a snake in front of six-month-old babies, their eyes widened, their... their um, heart rate increased, their body started exhibiting, like in their brain, stress immediately. And so there is something psychologically built into most of us as humans to kind of feel like, there's something wrong with snakes, it just it seems dangerous to me. And so that probably is one reason why in this story that is in Genesis, we find a serpent, the enemy embodied in serpent form. But it's more than just a psychological reason. In the ancient world of the Old Testament that surrounded God's people, um, there was a lot of thinking about snakes. Um, yes, they were seen as dangerous, but there was also a, a unique respect given to serpents. They were thought to be, in a way, eternal or ever-living. Do you know why? Because they would shed their skin. And so the ancients would see that and think, it's like they just keep living. They never die. They just keep going. And so a snake symbolized this sort of ongoing or almost everlasting kind of life. And they were also seen by the ancients as wise. And the reason for that is because snakes don't have eyelids. They don't close their eyes. They're always seeing. And so there's this imagery in Old Testament culture and the ancient Near Eastern world surrounding God's people in Israel, where snakes, yes, dangerous, but also a little bit mysterious, mystical, everlasting, all wise. To ancient Israel, there was some unique things that they had in their sort of consideration set around them. Surrounding nations around them, many of them would use snakes as part of their idol worship. Uh, there would even be idol images of serpents. I want you to think, many of you, are, I think, are familiar with uh, ancient Egypt and its role in Israel's history. 
If you've looked at some ancient Egyptian artwork or hieroglyphs, sometimes you see serpents in there. The pharaoh himself would wear a headdress or a crown that had what on the front? A serpent. Why? There was this sense of power, this sense of eternity, this sense of wisdom. And so in a way, to the people of God in ancient Israel, the people who were hearing the creation story passed on from generation to generation to generation, when they heard that there was a serpent in the garden, what were they thinking about? They were thinking about a couple things. They were thinking about the threat of other religions that surrounded them. There might even be temptation at time to fall into situations where you're worshiping other gods instead of the one true God, Yahweh. And so they're thinking about threats. They're also thinking about temptations. Maybe they would worship another god. Maybe they would want to go back to Egypt, if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus. The snake, in a way, did represent Egypt, and it did represent this idea of fear, this idea of force, this idea of power and position. And so, in a way, for the people of God, as they're as they're learning about their origin story and they discover there's a serpent in the garden, there's something they must be aware of. There's paths for them to choose, a way of Yahweh or a way of a serpent. So it's not accidental. It's not just because Pastor Mike doesn't like snakes that God writes a snake into the story. There was a lot of contextual consideration for it. Let's carry on in the text. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, this is important. I want you to catch a couple things in here. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Also, this is the first example of a husband or a boyfriend waiting for his girlfriend or wife to order the meal first. Have you ever done that at a restaurant, gentlemen, where it's time to order and um, your wife beforehand asks you or your girlfriend, uh, what are you going to get? I usually don't tell (laughs) because I don't want to um, order the same thing. Well, I don't want her to order the same thing as me. I have an agenda. I'm hoping she will order something different, and if I can coerce her towards something I also find interesting on the menu, then we have two different options on the table, and uh, I might get a dinner and a quarter, or a dinner and a half, and so it's biblical, actually. Gentlemen, let your ladies order first, and uh, anyway, okay, so that's not the main thing I wanted you to notice in verse (laughs) 6, but in verse 6, we actually see a recipe for disaster. As humans, we all know what it's like to experience temptation. And on the other side of temptation comes disaster. And sometimes we wonder, how did, how did this unfold the way it did? We see three things quite quickly in verse 6 that are a recipe for disaster. The first is this, allow desire to dictate. Eve allowed desire to dictate. It said in verse 6, she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Secondly, 
elevate pleasure. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye. Isn't it great that scripture includes little details like this? This was the ancient way as the origin story was passed on from generation to generation and then finally penned down. It was a way by God's spirit's inspiration to the writers of the day to say, make sure to tell the people how to watch out for temptation. Temptation begins arriving when you start allowing, in your inner world, desire to dictate. When you start elevating pleasure. And then thirdly, we see Eve here playing God. How do we see that? It says that she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. This is interesting because all through the Genesis creation account so far, who is the one that's declaring things good and not good? God and God alone. After each work of creation, it's good, it's good, it's good. After humanity is made, it's very good. When man is alone in the garden, it's not good. God alone has the knowledge of good and evil. He is the only one that can be the true independent source of all things. Some of us might think that sin entered the world the moment Eve took a bite. I propose to you it was the moment she decided she could make her own judgments on what's good and what's not good. And again, just so that it's fair for everybody, it's not just Eve. Adam's in on this too. She plays God. Now, for the first time in Scripture, instead of God, a person is making their own judgment on what is good. Friend, as you and I go through the everyday stuff of life, you know what it's like to experience temptation. When you're in those moments, do not allow desire to dictate. Do not elevate pleasure. Do not play God. It becomes tempting, doesn't it? To, to redefine things. Well, maybe this is actually good. Maybe scripture was a bit unclear on this. Don't go into that territory. Let's finish the text and then get to a few thoughts for the day. Verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized what? They were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and coverings for themselves. What's this in the ancient world? Now they're, they're putting together masks. They're, they're, they're having to create pretentious versions of themselves. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden at the cool of the day. That should have been a great sound for them. He's a relational God offering freedom and love, and instead there's a different response. What is it? They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid from rest to running, from no shame to shame. We have a tragedy. To help you, this story is included in scripture to help you and I. And one of the ways it does is it exposes the serpent's guide to corrupting the human life in four sinister steps. If you've ever wondered what the enemy is up to, we see a foundational reality presented to us in this text. And I want us to notice together four things that are happening in this text that the enemy did then and, sorry to say, is still doing now. And so you and I need to be alert and aware. The first is this. Isolate, then strike. 
isolate, then strike. Now, the language in the original text is a little bit unclear on this. Um, We understand that Adam and Eve are together, but as the serpent comes to Eve, there is this sense of her being on her own in this initial moment. It's as if the serpent was waiting until she was alone or she wasn't going to go to the other for support in the situation. She appeared alone, and so the enemy capitalized on it. You and I need each other. Friend, you need others in your life. Not just for a sense of social connection and friendship, as wonderful as those things are. We need each other in order to keep following Jesus, in order to keep trusting Jesus. I remember watching a documentary many, many years ago. and It was on the plains of Africa, and there was this particular scene where there was this beautiful antelope, and it was in sort of some tall grass. It was on its own, and it was daytime, and it was trying to have a bit of a rest in the afternoon, and it found a little bit of shade. And so they had this just close-up shot of this antelope, And you know, well, some of you experience this while I'm preaching. You know the nod where your eyes are heavy and some of that? The antelope's doing it. It's falling asleep. It's kind of, you know, so you're just watching like, oh, okay, it's going to have a nap. And then out of nowhere, a cheetah comes into the shot. Like it's right in the shot and it takes it out and that's the end of the scene. You're like, wow, it's dead. If that antelope was with others... It would have had a much better opportunity to stay alive. (laughs) The reason the cheetah was able to take it out so easily was it was isolated. Now, in scripture, we learn about a spiritual discipline or practice called solitude, and that's being alone with God. So that's good. So do it. (laughs) But don't make that a lifestyle. Your lifestyle is one another, is fellowship. You and I need one another. And one of the reasons why is the enemy will always, in order to try to corrupt your life, isolate you, and then strike when you're alone. Secondly, we know this about the serpent. The serpent raises questioning against God. Notice the language here. The questioning is against not God. It's not about God. Friend, if you are on a spiritual journey of some kind and you have questions about God, that's good. If you have been a lifelong Christian and you have questions about God, that's good. That's not bad. Don't hide from your questions. It's okay to have questions. What the enemy tries to do, however, is to raise questions not about God, but against God. Now, pay attention to this. The enemy does not show up then and does not show up now in our lives with horns, a pitchfork, and a cape. (laughs) He's not hissing. He doesn't show up with a big, dramatic, devil kind of scene. What's going on in the garden? The serpent shows up as a fellow seeker. In fact, the first conversation recorded in the Bible about God is initiated by whom? The serpent. It's as if he's this theologian that just, well, let's have a coffee shop chat together, Eve. And so he raises questions as if he were a fellow seeker. Daryl Johnson says this, The devil acts more pious than a nun and knows his Bible better than a professor of the Old Testament or a Jehovah's Witness. (laughs) 
So along comes the fellow seeker, and then what does the serpent do next? He begins to flatter Eve with his words, suggesting that Eve probably has an ability to think about reality as well as God, if not maybe even actually better than God. What a nice gesture of the serpent. I mean, if you're Eve, you're thinking, well, thank you very much. Yeah, I'd like to use my mind. Friends, we have to remember this. Throughout the rest of scripture, we understand this about our enemy. He is always an accuser. He is always a slanderer. He may put a lot of flowers around his words, but at the end of the day, he is an accuser. That's where the word devil and Satan comes from. Its origin means this idea of accusing. And yes, the enemy is probably at work trying to accuse you before God and before others, but the bigger threat is that the enemy is constantly trying to accuse God before you. And how does he go about it? Raising questions against God. Third, the serpent introduces twists to God's word and our thoughts. I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 16 with me. Here's how it's accounted in the earlier chapter. It says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Listen to God's language. It's a command, but what is the first part of the command? Freedom. And then one detail. There is one tree. Don't eat of it. If you do, you will die. Does the enemy twist what God has said and done earlier? Absolutely. When the enemy is speaking to Eve, as we've read earlier, what happens? He begins omitting things. He begins twisting things that God has said. First of all, when the enemy talks to Eve about the situation, he makes no mention of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, did God tell you you can't eat of any tree? Well, that's not. He's now misquoting God. Why? He's bringing twists. He also leaves out the word freely. It's as if he knows, you know, there's a character trait of God that's elevated too nicely with the use of freely. So I'll just take out that word and rephrase it a little differently. He's twisting God's character. He's twisting God's word, trying to twist her thoughts, and today still at work trying to twist our own. Ian Provan says this, the vocabulary of God in Genesis 2 indicates freedom and blessing. The vocabulary of the serpent in Genesis 3 indicates prohibition and restriction. The serpent's ploy is to suggest that the woman, uh, suggest to the woman that God is not really so good after all. You see, the twists leads to something. Eve begins questioning. Can God really be trusted? Can he be entirely trusted? Is he actually altogether good? Maybe he's mostly good, but he has, you know, his own sinister plan as well. Friends, the serpent still is at work today, and if you and I are not careful, if we're not aware, if we're not alert, we will discover there are times that the serpent comes alongside as a fellow seeker, trying to introduce ideas in your thoughts, questions against God, and along the way, twisting his words, God's, and twisting your thoughts in the process. Fourth and lastly, the serpent, as he's seeking to destroy a human life, presents an alternative source 
for humans to put their trust in. What happens in verse 4? After all of his crafty language, what does the serpent say in verse 4? You will surely not die. It's as if he can't hold himself anymore, back anymore. He's used all his clever language, his crafty language, his twisted words. He has Eve following along, and finally he just puts out an outright lie. I know God said that you will die if you eat of this tree, and what does the serpent say? You will surely not die. What is he doing in doing that? Presenting an alternative source for Eve to place her trust in. There is no more subtlety in his words. He's clear, he's direct. He's asking her, trust me, not him. Now, this is important for you and I to pay attention to, and I want to link some things that you might see sometimes in the New Testament. Have you ever noticed in times in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching in a place or he's moving about, and suddenly someone who's demonized starts having an outburst, and the demons appear to be bringing free advertising to Jesus? Have you noticed that, where they're like, This is the Son of God. And Jesus, what does he do in those moments? He doesn't say, oh, okay, no, it's true. Turn up the volume on them. That's free advertising. No. Swiftly, Jesus shuts them up. Why? In Acts chapter 16, Paul is going around And there's a slave woman who's a fortune teller, and an evil spirit is speaking through her. And what does she do as she's following along? She starts boasting about the work of Paul and these followers of Christ. These men are followers of God. And what's going on here? It's as if it's free advertising again, and Paul has it. He turns around and tells her to shut up, and the spirit quiets. Why not the free advertising? I mean, isn't that okay? The enemy is always looking to create a following and at times is willing to use truth to do so. Friends, I would rather hear something from Jesus that I don't yet understand than hear something from the serpent that I do. Why? Source matters. Why did Jesus set up, shut up the demons? Source matters. Why did Paul tell the woman and the spirit in her, to be quiet, source matters. Who are you following? Who are you listening to? The enemy is thrilled if you are willing to follow him. And that's what he's presenting to Eve, an opportunity to follow how he happens to see reality. But guess what? The enemy, I think, is just as happy if you're just going to follow yourself. Because either way, you're not following God any longer, and your life is being corrupted. If you and I ever steal something, it's as if we say, well, sorry, God, I I actually don't trust you to take care of me. I'll take care of this myself. If you and I lie, it's as if we're saying, sorry, God, I don't trust you to take care of this situation. I'll have to manufacture a way for it to be resolved on my own. If you and I are to gossip, it's as if we say, sorry, God, I don't trust what you say about those people. I don't actually see the same value in them, or I don't trust that I'm secure enough in you, so I'll just say whatever I need to say about this on my own. Thank you very much. I'll take it from here. When you and I get caught in patterns of allowing desire to dictate, elevating pleasure, and playing God ourselves, it's as if we say to the world, sorry God, and we say to God himself, I don't think you actually know what's fun or good. I don't think you actually know what love is. I don't think you actually know what is actually destructive. 
I want to share with you just for a few moments. When the enemy does these four things, as we see in Adam and Eve's experience in the garden, as we see in our own lives today, there are results. One of them is phobic, one of them is catastrophic, one of them is ironic. What is the phobic result of the enemy's successful work? Did you notice at the end when God is finding Adam and Eve, Adam says what? We hid because we were afraid. Afraid. Here in scripture, all we've known about God is that he's benevolent, he's good, he cares for his creatures and his creation. And in a few moments, the narrative has completely shifted to the point that humanity is now hiding from God because they're afraid of him. How do we know the enemy has become successful in his work if you have become afraid of God in any way? And guess who else the enemy would actually be happy for you to be afraid of? Him. Because he can rule with fear. And if you're not going to be afraid of God, he'd be happy for you to be afraid of him. Now, Scripture actually gives us no grounds to be afraid of the enemy. It calls us to be alert. It calls us to be aware, but not afraid. The moment you and I go into fear, it's a slippery slope. Now, I want you to do an exercise. I've done this with you a few years ago, but it's worth coming back to right now. I want us just to think about opposites. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to tell me what the opposite of that word is. Okay, let's try this together. So light. Dark. Good. Yeah, bad. You sounded like grade school kids saying bad instead of evil, but that was good. Um, God. Hmm. See, the opposite of light is definitely dark. And the opposite of good is definitely bad or evil. But I want to help correct some of our thinking. For most of my life, I've thought that the opposite equal to God is whom? The devil. It's the serpent. It's the enemy. But friends, Scripture leaves no room. Genesis leaves no room for you and I to believe that in the beginning there were two. God and an evil devil, and they're duking it out and working it out on earth. It's not so, and I won't go into the, there's a lot of layers to this, but you just need to point, you need to see that earlier in the text, it says that the serpent was made. He wasn't created by God to be a puppet of evil or something like that, but he had used his free will to defect, and now he's trying to pollute God's environment and God's world. But the fact that he's made says something. He's not an equal opposite to God. Do you know who the equal opposite to Satan is? Michael the archangel. Satan was a fallen angel. He was created by God, but he opted independence instead of dependence. And so the opposite to Lucifer is another angel with power, and that would be Michael, according to Scripture. You see, according to Scripture... There is no other equal opposed to God. There's no one. Light has darkness. Good has evil. God, there's nothing. Nothing's even close to being his equal. And the enemy would love you to be afraid of him, thinking that, well, the enemy's actually very, very powerful, and there's a chance he might take out God. There's no chance at all. 
So the results of the serpent's successful work are first phobic, they're secondly catastrophic. The enemy says this, you will surely not die. And what happens? Immediately, Adam and Eve begin dying. Friends, it's worth me reminding you today, in case you've taken it a bit casually in your life, there is an enemy to your soul, and the enemy hates you. Yes, I know that there's little devils and demons that run around on Halloween and they're cute and you give them candy. But there is a real serpent that lives in an unseen realm that knows who you are and hates you and wants to destroy you. It says in scripture quite clearly, he would love to steal from you whatever he can. He would love to kill you. He would love to destroy you. You see, death is not the end. There is existence beyond death, and the enemy knows that, and that's why he's not just here to steal and kill. He wants to destroy after death as well. Now, there is catastrophic results, which is death, and then there is an ironic result of the enemy's successful work. Did you notice earlier that the enemy had said, um, if, you, if you eat of this, you will become like God. What's the irony? In the garden, there was already two creatures who were like God, created in his likeness, made as image bearers. And along comes the enemy, twisting thoughts so, success so successfully, he presents to Eve this idea, hey, you and Adam, if you do this, you'll actually become like God. Hello? They're already like God. And the unfortunate irony in the result of the successful work of the serpent is this. Instead of becoming more like God, they become less like God. They, in fact, become less human. And they become more serpent-like. What does the language in the text keep saying afterwards? Their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. Even the serpent says, if you do this, your eyes will be opened. After they did it, what happens? The text says their eyes were opened. What's the creature that had the eyes open all the time? The serpent. Instead of becoming more like God, they became less like God, they became less human. They became more like the serpent themselves. You'd have to wonder if Adam and Eve, after this experience, had a moment quietly in their own souls or in their conversation with one another where they said, what have I become? Have you ever had a moment in your own life experience where you've asked yourself, what have I become? What have we become? Why does it hurt so bad to be me, to be human? And where did that hurt come from? Ian Provan, when he's commenting on the origins of evil and suffering, says this, evil and suffering have arisen from within God's creatures who have turned away from what is good and bequeathed this damaged inheritance to their descendants. Evil thus is understood as originating in the human failure to trust in the goodness and generosity of God and the human desire to be a God. It has led to suffering. Rather than cooperating together under, God's, uh, under God in the ruling of creation, human beings have instead sought to rule one another. Widespread and devastating suffering have been the result. Daryl Johnson on the origins of evil and suffering says it this way, we sinned into existence a creature that was never intended to exist, a creature centered on itself. This is the source of all of our mis misery. 
This is the cause of war and injustice, poverty and ecological destruction. I, me, mine, myself, is the creed of humanity apart from God. It is the driving force of so much of our existence, driving us into a deep mind from which we cannot free ourselves. When self is at the center, we are not free. We become prisoners to a God who cannot bear the weight of our worship. From this bondage, we need a savior. As we move towards concluding today, I want you to notice one final thing from the text. If you were with us in the early parts of this series, some of you remember that in Genesis chapter 1, the song of creation, when God is referred to, the Hebrew word there is Elohim, Elohim, which is Israel's universal name for God. But in Genesis chapter 2, when the creation story is rehearsed again, but from a different angle, Elohim is not used anymore. Now it's Yahweh, which was Israel's personal relational name for God. It's the name that God had introduced himself to his people as. And almost exclusively afterwards, we read about Yahweh, which is translated the Lord God, which means he's personal and he's relational. I want you to, with that in mind, go back to verses one through three with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God, Yahweh, had made. He said to the woman, now quoting the serpent, did God, did Elohim, did God say, you must not eat from the fruit that's in the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Uh, sorry, I read ahead there. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but Elohim, but God, Elohim, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, for if you do, you will die. Why is that significant? Did you notice the shift there? Genesis 2, it was all about Yahweh. Even as Genesis 3 opens, the narrator uses the term Yahweh. And then what does the serpent call him? Elohim. He's kind of an idea out there, right? He's not this personal relational Yahweh, is he? He's an Elohim. He's kind of just a step removed from how you thought you knew him. Eve does not speak of God the way God has made himself known personally. She speaks of God the way the serpent does. It's as if she was willing to see, well, maybe he is a little distant. Maybe he is a little less personal. Maybe he's more of an idea or a concept out there. He's not a relationship. Friends, to Israel in the ancient world, God had a name, Yahweh, the Lord God, God Almighty, God personal, God relational. And friends, to you and I today in 2023, God has a name. He's been made known through Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus. He's personal. He's relational. Don't you love that he has a name? That when you pray to God, you're not just praying to some idea, some distant, docile deity out there. He has a name. He's Jesus. You can know him. You can be in relationship with him. This Jesus says in John 10, 10, the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. In Acts chapter 4, 12, it says this, salvation or the rescue that you and I 
desperately need is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. In Philippians chapter 4, it says, Jesus, the very name of God, who is being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has a name, let's stand together. Jesus is Lord, friends. Pharaoh is not Lord. The Roman emperor is not Lord. The serpent is not Lord. And by God's grace, he's rescued us from having to believe that you or I am Lord. God has a name. It's Jesus, and he's worthy of our worship. Let's sing together. have a circumstance or a situation that's been unfolding in your life. It might be very recent. Maybe it's been long term. And what you need is prayer in the powerful name of Jesus over that circumstance and situation. You see, the world would tell us that there is no hope or there is no help. But what we've discovered is by God's good grace, he's made himself known through Jesus Christ. And there is hope and there is help for any person and every circumstance. That means you and what you're facing. So today as we Maybe you would like to receive prayer for anything, something that matters to you right now. Somebody, maybe in the room today, you thought, but my situation, it's just so weird. I don't know. It feels weird to ask for prayer for this. It matters. Receive prayer. On the screen behind me is going to appear some discussion questions for this week. Perhaps your life group, your coffee club, your DNA group, Papa group, whatever you might be part of. Maybe just as a couple or as an individual, you're doing ongoing study in this Genesis series. You can take a picture of this. This will also appear online in our, on our website. So if you're wanting to track along and study this a little deeper, you can follow along. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your good work in our world and in our lives. I'm praying right now for anyone in this room that maybe has lived under a lie of the serpent. Praying that today those lies would totally be broken. There's somebody here and they've been scared to death of the devil. And today you're helping them see just how magnificent and above and beyond you are, just how wonderful your victory is to overcome all things, including the enemy. Father, we're going into your world on your mission, and we declare in this moment we need you. We can't do it on our own want to bring your presence, your word, your work, your message, your ministry into the everyday stuff of life right here in the Comox Valley. And we need each other and we need the anointing of your Holy Spirit. So now I pray that your spirit would rest on us as we go in Jesus' strong name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Please enjoy a bit of time with one another. Guess what? It's going to be light later today. Enjoy that. And well done for everybody. I know we were a little thinner in the first service. I'm expecting some of the Daylight Savings people to join us in the second service. <laughs> well done you for being here so early today. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. If you need prayer, please come forward. This team would love to pray with you today.
Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.